Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews from the archives and play only the finest bits for you. I'm Christopher Ward with the creator of the show, my partner, Tom Chokic. Tom? Christopher, great to talk to you again. We've got an amazing show coming up. And first of all, our headline act today is The Tragically Hip. It's an interview from 1991. Mm -hmm. When I first heard this interview, and I just went, "Ah, I don't know. There's not enough Gord Downey. It's not all that interesting. And then what I did is I listened to it again a few days ago, and I went, there are enough good parts for a great tragically hip story here and there's some funny moments there's some really odd moments there's a moment in which the interviewer your friend terry david mulligan asks a great question to gore downey it's a very short clip it's only 20 seconds long but it gives me goosebumps just to think about it because there's something about that that kind of touches on the magic of gore downey well i think what we're also grappling with is terry's style of interviewing which is not typical Yes. It's very conversational. Um, he just acts like he's you know, sitting down the bar from the band members and striking up a casual conversation, and it really works. It really does. So we did find some great clips. There's probably about five or six clips. But before we get to the hip, I want to talk about bands like the hip who have lost important members and ended it right then and there. But first, let's talk about bands that carried on after the death of an important member. Should we have a a subcategory of bands that carried on and shouldn't have? (laughs) Because there's a lot of those, I think. Yes, absolutely. I think you're right there. But, you know, the biggest example is probably ACDC, who lost Bon Scott, and within a few months had hired Brian Johnson to uh, join the band as a lead singer, and he actually ended up writing the lyrics for Back in Black. And, you know, Back in Black was like them coming back in mourning, and it sounded amazing. Of course, it was their biggest album. So talk about a band that recovered and recovered very quickly. ACDC is a great example. Can you think of any others? Who carried on after the death of an important member in excess did. It's one of those things, if, if you'd been there at the time and part of the decision-making process, you might have gone, well, that's ridiculous. Michael Hutchins is so essential to the very sound of this band. But then after the fact, you go, well, these band members contributed an incredible amount to the compositions and to the sound of the band, and they have every right to carry on. Another band that carried on after the death of an important member is Leonard Skinner. Boy, they lost a few members of that band in the plane crash that killed Ronnie Van Zandt, Cassie Gaines. What about Chicago? Oh, yes. I didn't even think of Terry Kath, but yeah, he was an important member of that band. And of course, he died in this, like horrible accident where he was playing Russian roulette with a gun that he thought was empty. But yeah, they did go on. But boy, did he have a great voice and just a great presence. And that was a huge loss. And it gave way to Peter Cetera and being the lead singer of the band and having a solo career. Yep, that's right. That's right. Um, Of course, Allison Chains carried on after the death of Lane Staley. And the biggest one to me, the biggest band that carried on without their lead singer, which in many ways, is absolutely an impossible ask, is Queen. So they carried on with Paul Rogers yeah. <laughs> for a few years. <laughs> and they carried yeah. on, of course, with Adam Lambert to this present day. And Adam is great. Adam is a gifted vocalist. And when he comes out there, he literally will go to the front of the stage at the beginning of the show and say, I want to address the elephant in the room. I'm not Freddie. 
And I'm not trying to be Freddy. I just want to do this music as best as I can. And these guys in Queen, they're Queen, but I'm not. I'm just kind of here as a special guest. And from what I've heard, Adam hits it out of the park every night when he performs with Queen. I don't want to see the band without Freddie, so <laughs> that's just me. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about bands that ended with the death of a member. Of course, there's Nirvana. As soon as Kurt was gone, the band was gone. Understandably so. Yeah. By contrast, I mean, Led Zeppelin arguably could have continued on with an, another drummer. Yeah. But there's a parallel to that. What about Keith Moon and The Who? Was he not essential in the same way that Bonzo was? I actually think he was. But I think that Roger and Pete were not willing to hang it up. And honestly, I actually right. think they were sick and tired of Keith Moon and his antics by that point. Like they were devastated by his death, but they were not the least bit surprised. A few other bands that ended with the death of a member, there's The Doors, of course, with the death of Jim Morrison. There's Soundgarden coming to an end with the tragic death of Chris Cornell. Motorhead, of course, ending with the death of Lemmy. Van Halen, they survived a bunch of lead singers coming and going, but once Eddie Van Halen died, it was over for Van Halen. Yeah. Finally, we have the Tragically Hip, who have really only played two gigs after the passing of Gore Downey. First of all, they played with Feist at the Junos. Right. And they recently played a tribute to Buffy St. Marie. And at both events, they only played one song with a new lead singer. First with Leslie Feist, and then with a singer named William Prince at the Buffy St. Marie tribute in Ottawa. And it was great. It was a great performance, and it was great to see those guys on stage. So that's coming up this week. Plus, a weird and wonderful interview with Cheap Trick from 1980, right at the peak of their popularity. And just like Cheap Trick's music, this interview is energetic and accessible, but just a little bit odd. Also, some really rare interview clips from the late Bo Diddley, and these are great. He explains why he went from boxing to rock and roll and talks about his place in the history of music. And we finished the show with one of your favorites, Christopher, a great musician and producer, Nick Lowe. This is from 1984, and Nick talks about his music, fighting technology to make a great-sounding song, and some pretty amusing things about working with Elvis Costello. It's a charming interview and a ton of fun. Let's get started with the Tragically Hip. From 1996, their biggest chart hit, Ahead by a Century, The Tragically Hip. Tom, ask any Canadian who the country's best bands are from the last, let's say, half a century. Right. There are a lot of acts that would appear on a lot of those lists, but I would guess that the one name that consistently comes up is The Tragically Hip. Mm -hmm. Of course, the band could not have foreseen the future, but even in these early days when this interview takes place, you can tell that these guys are in for the long haul. The interview took place in 91, around the time of the second full-length album, Road Apples. The interview clips come from a live in-studio session at Little Mountain Sound in Vancouver with my old buddy Terry David Mulligan, <laughs> hosting in his always congenial manner. It's a rambling conversation, as befits the subject, so ramble on, gentlemen. I notice you do work up a sweat, don't you? Yeah, it's one given. That's one tune. Yeah, one tune. What are you going to be like at the end of the night? I'll be sweaty. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we are. We are on the West Coast, ladies and gentlemen, with the Tragically Hip. Um, and uh, we have a studio audience, friends and, uh, and, and fans and uh, industry-type folks. We'll, Gordy, we won't ask you the first question because I know that you're catching your breath here. Thanks. You are in a Little Mountain Sound. All right, uh, you are a trivia buffs, all of you. 
So uh, name yep. me a couple of groups who've walked through these uh, studios. The crew. Aerosmith. Poison. Poison. ACDC. Daily Rock. Cult. Yeah. You feel the vibe? Raffi. Raffi. Raffi did his metal album in here, yeah. yeah. Uh, listen, this was a buzz for us, so all of these people here in the studio to A, get their hands on the tickets for a command performance, and B, to be in the room. What's it like for you working in a studio like this? I don't know. Would you people pay 75 bucks to be here? <laughs> the kid did that last night. No. Would you pay, give us Maple Leaf Reds to be here? <laughs> You, is it a, a you different experience? You've, you've played all the clubs, you've played all the venues. What's it like being actually in a studio? But, but to have people in here, you spend a lot of time in the studio. Yeah. It's different. I mean, it's definitely a different vibe for sure. Because you're sort of used to taking your time in the studio and, and listening to things as they go and stopping. We've played weirder gigs. <laughs> yeah. Have you? Yeah, and we played an in-star once, so it was pretty weird. Yeah. Uh, did they throw you out? Amid the shoppers. No, did you, did you not do a, a gig as a hip-hop band once? Well, supposedly. Supposedly. They booked you as what, John? What was it? Oh, it was a hip-hop uh, dance. Amer American hip-hop, yeah. American <laughs> hip-hop in, uh, I think it was Hamburg or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Dusseldorf or something like that. Did you change the set? No. Well, we tried to play funkier, but... <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but instrumentals. Out. All right, we have a new album to talk about, Road Apples. And we'll go... Actually, a uh, very important uh, guest here in the... Uh, not so much in the studio is, is uh, Don Smith, who's in the producer chair on the outside. Yeah, Don made the, uh, <clears throat> made the trip up here from Los Angeles to take in all the great Vancouver sunshine. <laughs> oh, you, what a shot. What a shot. Uh, tell me the working relationship that you've got uh, with Mr. Smith. Did he change at all from, uh, from the time of up to here to Road Apples, I mean, in, in the way that he, the band went through the process? It was really, really casual. I mean, Ardent was a great experience, our first time with him in the studio, and, and Road Apples in New Orleans was even even more casual, you know. I mean, there was no pressure like the red the red lights on, tape is rolling. You know, you got to get it in this take, or you know, the end of the world is going to come. I mean, working with Don, it's just like if the vibe is right, then then we record it, and you know, he knows our sound better than pretty much anybody, and you know, he knows when we're hot, and he knows when we're not, and he knows when to run tape and when not to, you know. And when not to waste tape. Yeah. In other words, you still hold. Or try to try to follow us. <laughs> uh, you still hold that three uh, three take tape. If you can't kind of nail it in the first second, maybe third tape, you, you maybe uh, walk from it and come back to it later on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah move on as soon as possible. You know, because it's usually within the first couple of takes. So there's a great example of the entire band's chemistry and how they all seem to be pulling in the same direction. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Tom, in the next clip, Gord Downey explains where he goes while performing. I think you're running out of stuff to ask us. So. Not at all. Pretty Gord. boring guys. No, 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 I want to ask, Gord, where do you go when you get out there? <laughs> when you get out there, when you get in the middle of a lyric? Uh, a bit, can you tell us? Do you know? No, I did, um, in the course of the song, I, I find it's necessary to uh, kind of get the whole body into it. Um, otherwise, it just doesn't come out properly. Are you still with us? I'm getting there. I'm coming back. That started with a great question by Terry David Mulligan, where do you go? And if you ever saw the hip live, you'll know that Gord Downey <laughs> was a unique front man who seemed to be either beamed down from outer space or someone trying to get to another planet. <laughs> I like that. That's good. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Still much more to come with The Tragically Hip.
Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. We are in the middle of a 1991 conversation with the hip. Coming up, a great clip in which the band members uh, talk about their various musical influences, revealing some of what makes up their unique sound. There's also a kind of philosophical conversation about winning awards, and particularly poignant given that they had just been given the 1990 Juno for the most promising group of the year. I think with hindsight, we can safely say that the hip lived up to that promise. Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, you are, in fact, the living embodiment of the history of rock and roll. I haven't run across a band in quite some time who knows as much about what has gone on before as you guys. Do you find that this was a common thing amongst you, that you you, you knew about the history of rock and roll and who'd, who'd been playing previously? I think it's a common ground in our tastes. I think everyone in the band had different tastes and different influences, but we all had a common ground. I think that was R&B. Who went back the furthest? Probably Me. Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> to where? <laughs> Certainly as far back anyways as Robert Johnson and those guys. Holy smoke. Who, uh, who do you currently have in your, uh, in your, oh, so your tape player, for example? Who are you playing? Who are you listening to? Red Hot Chili Peppers right now. All right. Still. John? Sam Phillips. Uh, the Willie Dixon <laughs> box set. Toys in the Attic. Toys in the Attic? Wow. <laughs> and Sonic Youth. And that's why... The music comes out the way it does. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Um, the, uh, you won the uh, most promising Juno. Uh, and of course, opened vast quantities of doors for you. Is that correct? It made a huge, huge difference in your life. An impact. It flew Legitimized open. us to our parents, I think, which was Did it? Is that about it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's uh, speak about that for just a moment, about the uh, competitive nature of, of award shows, uh, Gordon. Well, um... When we won the award, it was, it was really flattering, obviously, first and foremost. But I guess we were pretty cautious about mining a, you know, a, you know, a proper course for a long career. And that's what, I guess, you know, you can't look into the future too much, but we'd like to do this for as long as we can. And sometimes, when you win awards, it can uh, actually shorten that, because it raises expectations above where you ever wanted them. And, uh, you know, but I guess basically you can't look that far and just take the award and give it to your parents. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of attention now, but, but if you start to believe those uh, press notices that, that things yeah. get out of skew, how do you if keep If you believe straight? the good things, you've got to believe the bad things, too. Yeah. I, guess, I guess the bottom line is you know when things are going right and when you're being honest. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We had expectations for what we wanted to do with this record, and we have expectations what we want to do live. And we know when we've had a good show when we walk off, and it's, you know... The audience may have really liked the night, but we walk off knowing whether we were good or bad, whether we were playing at the edge of our ability or not. And uh, what's the batting average currently? <laughs> First gig was last night. Uh, <laughs> one for one, one this year. This interview from 1991 is promoting the album Road Apples, and here's something I didn't know until recently. The hip wanted Road Apples to be a double album, but the record company said absolutely not. So... There were a bunch of songs left off the album, songs that were kind of all ready to go, ready to be pressed and put on the album, and they never did see the light of day until the hip released that album in 2021 under the great title, Saskadelphia. 
I absolutely <laughs> love title. that title. But I think it was also a working title for the album originally, wasn't I it? I think you're right. And I think that the record company said, that makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I like it. It's great. And in June of 2022, they released a live album from around the same time. So the music that they were promoting with Road Apples and the music from Up to Here would have been on that uh, live album from earlier in 2022. Coming up, the band talk about the influence of recording in a couple of cities that have a storied history musically, Memphis and New Orleans. And a little mountain sound here in Vancouver. We have the Tragically Hip here on the West Coast. Nice to have you with us. Pleasure to be here. Former, Thanks, Terry. Uh, Rhodes Scholars at Queen's University. <laughs> was that supposed to be on the first album, Up to Here and Didn't Get There? Yeah, yeah. When we went down to Arden in Memphis, we, uh, we laid down a, a version of it, and for one reason or another, it didn't get on up to here and stuff, so uh, we just played it over and over for the last year and stuff, and it was a good thing. You know, we went down to New Orleans for Road Apples and laid it down in like one take kind of thing and got a much better version. Yeah, so there were two, we two songs we laid down. That we only played, I think, one time the whole time we were down there. And they were? Three Pistols and On the Verge. And I think we played them once each, and that was the version that's on the album. They were road tested? Yeah, yeah very. very yeah, so. Tell me about road testing. Well, well, if you play in front of people and uh, you don't get any applause, uh, <laughs> you, get, you don't play it again. <laughs> okay, um, let's take you down to uh, New Orleans. Now, the reason why a lot of the bands came to Little Mountain Sound is because they get away from their own area. So why, why New Orleans? Same, same reason in reverse? Yeah, we, uh, you know, you're going to spend six weeks somewhere. You might as well make it a place that, you know, you've never been or you know very little about. That was the case with Memphis and it's the case with New Orleans, you know, and, and we knew it would be pretty funky and weird when we got down there. And uh, lo and behold, it was. One of the great music cities, right? Of course. Yeah. Yep. Not only can you see a different band there every night, but you can see a different kind of music there every night, like from straight... Dixieland jazz to like the weirdest contemporary rock and stuff. They just there's different bars running all the time every night with different great kinds of music. In. And you recorded in a house that was uh, spiritual. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, big old uh, mansion in the French Quarter, and uh, yeah, like 25 foot ceilings and chandeliers, and a, the most important thing, a big, huge, humongous pool table. Okay, that clip was just after a performance of one of their songs, and you can hear Gord Downey trying to catch his breath while the other guys are talking. So if you're listening to the podcast version of this show, I want you to rewind it a few seconds and you can hear him pant plain as day. <laughs> <laughs> Here the band takes some questions from the studio audience. As always, they respond casually, but with insight. From a pressure perspective, are the albums becoming easier or harder to record? And this is really for any member of the band or all of the guys. I think they're getting... Uh I don't know. They're a lot of fun to record, actually, and uh, so it's easy to do. I mean, it's uh, it's a lot of long hours, but I mean, you wouldn't really want it any other way. If the day could be longer, you'd probably even spend, you know, 28 hours a day doing it. It's a lot of fun, you know. Yeah, I don't think our expectations have changed on what we're trying to do. I think maybe other people's have, but <laughs> we're just doing the same thing we always did, I guess. Life of a band on the road has its ups and downs. Your recent gig in Vancouver here at the Town Pump would be considered an up. It was a very hot show, but on the downside, I understand that one of your most unresponsive audiences was in Alberta on the night of a famous hockey trade. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. We were at the... The great trade. The white 
motel or the something like that. It was like talent Black night. Motel. <laughs> Black like, motel. Yeah, it was the day that they traded Gretzky to L.A. and it was Ooh. like. And all the cars were draped in black crape and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. I was cracking all these jokes on stage and they weren't going. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> just like, what's the big deal? It's not it wasn't that good. <laughs> we have time for one more. Uh, what's the secret uh, to be able to submerse yourself so completely in your music and not lose that ever so important communication with your audience? It's because the tunes are so cool. <laughs> right on. <laughs> we, we have to be more into the music than anyone else. We have to be having a better time than anyone else, and that's uh, rarely a problem. Like we, uh, we just have a good time when we do it. That's great. Great questions from the audience. Of course, you can tell probably that those were all media types because of the way they spoke. <laughs> I wondered. But I love that line that the band says they have to be more into the music to get the audience more into the music. Yeah. That was the Tragically Hip on Famous Lost Words. I want you to want me. That's the title of their big hit song from 1979, Cheap Trick, and I Want You to Want Me. <laughs> Tom, Cheap Trick formed in 1973, and after tweaking the lineup early on, they became the band that records and tours to this day. They have sold over 20 million records and done over 5,000 shows, and I've only seen one of them. <laughs> And you're going to hate me, but I went to see the opening act. Oh, and who was that? <laughs> Graham Parker and the Rumor. Of course. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> there you have tastes revealed, huh? Yeah. Um, the first two albums released in North America did very little to boost the prospects of Cheap Trick, but album number three, the one we all know and love, Live at the Budokan, took care of their anonymity for once and for all. It was the live version of I Want You to Want Me that launched a career that landed them in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, when you turn over the mic to guitarist Rick Nielsen or drummer Bun E. Carlos, expect the wacky. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, he calls himself Bun E. Lincoln at one point and Bun E. Roosevelt at <laughs> yeah. another point. Just funny and <laughs> weird, for sure. Rick Nielsen sounds like... I don't know, a bit of a cynic, but in this clip, you can definitely hear his pride in the band that he is arguably the leader of. Here's some Cheap Trick history for you. The real Cheap Trick story. Believe it or not, we've been together since 1973. The group originally started with two different members. Uh, it was originally Bunny Carlos and, and Rick Nielsen. That's me. And for about the first uh, six months of the, of the whole inception and conception of the group uh, we had a different bass player and a different singer but uh, Tom Peterson was only uh, uh, hiding out in the streets of Philadelphia waiting until we started making money because he didn't want to come and starve for six months and uh, Mr. Robin Zander was under contract with some unscrupulous uh, agent so we couldn't get him in the band for the first six months and uh, but I think uh, after we got that first six months over, it's been Tom, Rick, Bunny, and Robin uh, all the way, and here it is, 1980, and uh, we can say we've had a bit of success with uh, some of the albums we've made. Cheap Trick was so weird and wonderful. You've got the lead singer with movie star good looks and a great voice. You've got the good-looking bass player. You've got the drummer who looks like a 1950s businessman who's had a very rough day. And you've got Rick Nielsen, <laughs> who looks like the geekiest guy in music history, but who can just wail on the guitar and create these great punk 
pop, classic rock songs. It's, a, it's quite a mixture of personalities and sounds from that band. It is a wonderful chemistry for sure. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Joking. Now, don't forget to check out past episodes of the show featuring artists like Duran Duran, Peter Frampton, Bon Jovi, Cyndi Lauper, and so many more. Simply follow the show on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, and scroll through the episodes to find an interview with your favorite artists. Still to come, more from Cheap Trick, including how the history of the band goes all the way back to the American Civil War. This is Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews from the archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Right now, we're in the middle of a fun and slightly bizarre interview with Cheap Trick from 1980. Well, let's continue with the bizarre. And who better than drummer Bun E. Carlos with some help from Rick Nelson? Actually, there's drummers in my family all the way back to the American Civil War. Uh, You mean Bunny Lincoln? Bunny Lincoln... Bunny Roosevelt, Bunny Wilson, Bunny Roosevelt again, Bunny Truman. There's a basic element that's always used in our Cheap Trick songs, and the element of Bunny Carlos on the drums, probably one of the best. He's played with the best, and that's. But he's made. He's probably made the careers of many musicians you've heard of. You know, Bo Diddley, Del Shannon, Freddie Can, the Shirelles, Chuck Berry. He's he put Chuck behind bars. He was so good. He, you know, got him excited that he was, he couldn't think about his taxes. So he, for some reason, you know, Chuck was so enthralled with the way Bunny played drums that he forgot. Tom, I think Rick Nielsen is complimenting the other members of Cheap Trick, but sometimes it's hard to tell. He certainly has fun putting on the press. There is a bit of melody that we use in our tunes. We try to have a little harmony, and uh, again, with... A lot of our tunes, we try to have them real diverse, and I think it it helps because there's real diverse characters in the band. You know, like you got a guy like Tom Peterson who plays four, eight, and ten, and twelve-string bass guitars, so they they add a different different sound. And then the way that Robin sings, he always uh, he acclimates himself to the song. So like uh, one song could be a love song, next song could be a hate song, and he he does them with with an equal vengeance, and uh, he can interpret. Uh, like I write a lot of the songs, he interprets them better than I usually. He usually comes up with better stuff and more emotion than I've ever put into him, so it, he makes me look good. This is a 1980 interview with Cheap Trick on Famous Lost Words. Tom, the story of a song being released twice and becoming a hit the second time around is not unusual, but three times lucky? That is a true anomaly. Now, of course, with hindsight, I Want You to Want Me sounds like a perfect hit record. Well, the song I Want You to Want Me, that's like uh, that's like a 1930s Glenn Miller swing song, if that were back then. I mean, I can picture sitting in a with a big couch and listening to a, a clarinet solo and, a, and the, the Andrews Sisters, yeah. It's supposed to be like a 30s or 40s swing-type tune. I Want You to Want Me was just another song. It was like a, it was a tune we'd been doing for a long time. Alive. We just toned it down for that record. We made it uh, not as crazy as it was live, and because of that, it sounds a little uh, laid back and wimpy in there. But we released that song, I Want You to Want Me, three times, and the third time it was a hit. 1979, their biggest hit, I Want You to Want Me. What a massive breakout that was for them, and that album, Live at Budokan. 
Me and my buddies, Christopher, we listened to that album nonstop in the spring and summer of 1979, which is quite the turnaround for us since me and my buddies hated Cheap Trick when they opened for Kiss on the Love Gun Tour in 1977. You did? Why? (laughs) Well, first of all, we didn't know who Cheap Trick was. This was two years before they became popular. Remember, we were Kiss fans. So Kiss was like big, loud, tall, dressed up and all that. And these geeky guys, Bunny Carlos, like I said earlier, and Rick Nielsen coming out and you're going like, who the hell are these guys? It didn't go over well for (laughs) us. And I don't think the rest of the audience was into it as well. But we were wrong in hindsight because even us KISS fans really liked Cheap Trick. At least me and my friends did when they kind of hit it big. I can see it, though. They're they're definitely more of a pop band than a rock band in, in some respects. For sure. Here Rick tells the interesting history of the song Dream Police. Dream Police was a song that we had about 98 different versions of. And the only thing they all had in common was the verse, the dream police, they come inside of my head, or whatever the lyrics are. And we kept rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. One version sounded like uh, Surfin' Bird. One version sounded kind of like a Paul McCartney single. And we almost did it for the first album, but it, we tossed it out along with I Did Go-Go Girls and I Was a Fool and some of the other ones. and. It finally came to shape in 1979. Dream Police 1979 and Cheap Trick, amazing production on that song with the big buildup of the orchestra in place of a guitar solo. Man, I love the way that builds. That's an interview with Cheap Trick from 1980 on Famous Lost Words. From 1955, how many songs are named after the artist who performed them? That's Bo Diddley, From the album Bo Diddley with the song Bo Diddley. (laughs) Okay, it's undeniably cool to have a song with your name in it. Yes. And then there's that incredible Bo Diddley signature guitar riff, which can be heard on records by so many artists like um, U2 in Desire. Good song and great use of that. Great example. George Michael's Fade. Oh, yeah. Not Fade Away. Maybe one of the earliest rips of Bo Diddley's dunk, 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 right? Mm -hmm. The Who's Magic Bus. Right. I mean, it's a long list. However... That latter distinction must be more than a little bittersweet because you cannot copyright a riff. So Bo Diddley's best-known work is in public domain. Oh, so he would not have made a penny from any of that. And you can sit and write a song with that riff and, and do it to your heart's content. Yeah. But Bo Diddley, originally Ellis Bates, was more than just one hit or one riff. He had hit records, he toured with Elvis, The Stones, and The Clash, (laughs) and he wrote hits like I'm a Man, right? The one that uh, Spencer Davis did. Really? And Love is Strange. Oh. Yeah. Like I'm a man and I can't help but love you so. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now Love is Strange, that's not the Mickey and Sylvia song, is it? Yeah, it is. Come here, lover boy. (laughs) Sorry, I was looking at you when I said that, but that's a funny um, moment. (laughs) This was not the occasion for us to be working in the same room, but (laughs) nevertheless, here we are. That's great. Yeah, he he also designed guitars. Have you seen that sort of rectangular-shaped guitar of his? Yes. Yeah, fantastic, right? And he built his own recording studio. The guy was a multi-talented man, and he is indeed, in my mind, one of the founding fathers of rock and roll. Here he talks about moving from fighting... To playing. Strange as it may seem, I used to be a little, you know, if I may so say so, a little jive fighter, you know, and it was beginning to look pretty good for me, but uh, I preferred uh, 
like another type of entertainment, uh, in other words, entertaining the people. So I got started on beating and banging on my axe a little bit more, and, and so up popped Bo Diddley. That's a classic interview with Bo Diddley. As you said, Christopher, so many songs that had that classic Bo Diddley beat, more than 50 big songs in total, including wow. Mickey's Monkey by The Miracles, right. American Girl by Tom Petty. Of right? course, Jeez. yeah. Yeah. And best of all, right. New York Groove by Ace Frehley from oh. Kiss. He can't help himself, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Here Bo Diddley talks about the early days of rock and roll. I was there first. Me, the Flamingos, the Moon Glows, Little Walter Jacobs, Muddy Waters. And then we had the Spaniels, and uh, we had uh, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. And then came the Five Satins and all this. All these uh, acts during this time was uh, up-and-coming acts. But I was at the beginning of what they call rock and roll. Uh, the Five Satins and other various groups were into ballad. They was not labeled as rock and rollers. So I went in and out of this whole area. But Alan Freed was the man who had enough nerve to put these records of the various artists at this time, including mine, on the turntable and send it out over the nation. And a lot of people put him down because of this, but I, my hat's off to him because he was a fighter and he was a believer. Gotta love a little bit of rock and roll history from someone who was there from the beginning. That's Bo Diddley on Famous Lost Words. Up next, Nick Lowe tells us what it was really like to produce the famously cranky Elvis Costello. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews from the archives and play the best parts for you. Nineteen seventy-nine, "Cruel to Be Kind," great hit by Nick Lowe. Love that song, boy! It still sounds great too, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Nick Lowe has had a wonderfully varied career as a songwriter, artist, and record producer. In fact, he may be best known for his production work with people like Elvis Costello, Graham Parker, The Pretenders, Johnny Cash, The Fabulous T-Birds, and others. In his self-deprecating way, he credits others and describes his approach to working as haphazard at best, but he's been a mighty influence all along. As a songwriter, he's known for Cruel to Be Kind, his biggest hit, and What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, an Elvis Costello hit. Right. But he was also in beloved bands like Rockpile and Brinsley Schwartz. Brinsley Schwartz is actually the name of the guitar player. <laughs> he ended up playing in Graham Parker's band, so there's a whole lot of cross-pollination going on musically. Right. In this interview, we find Lowe as charming as ever in his bemused, low-key way. <laughs> he talks about the road, the studio, and what your dreams are as a rock and roll kid. The art of record production seems to come naturally to Nick Lowe. And there aren't many people of your caliber that produce what you do and play the way you do. Uh, is that uh, a legitimate statement to make? Well, I suppose so. I think probably the reason there aren't very many is because that the... Uh, the, the way I produce and the stuff I produce isn't particularly successful. <laughs> that's, that's probably why. It's people are avoiding it like the plague. But uh, I tend to, um, although I haven't produced anything for a while, um, I, I packed it in, actually, for a, a while ago for various reasons, or, although that's going to change again. Mm -hmm. But um, 
I really produce in the old-fashioned way, where where I I'm not a, a glorified engineer. A lot of producers nowadays are really just very good engineers, and uh, they li- they leave it up to the artists really to do the the arranging and things like that. But uh, the way I um, produce really is in the old-fashioned way, where I um, arrange the stuff and sort of try and vibe the artist up. I mean, you've got to just pull the best performance you can out of them by hook or by crook by trickery and mm-hmm. deception and things like that um but uh it's something i enjoyed doing yeah where did you learn uh, the the craft of of, pr- of production or producing records was it just uh the school of hard knocks or well yeah i was i was slung in really a bit at the deep end when when stiff records started um there was three of us involved in it when it first started up and i was the only one of the three really who'd spent any time in a recording studio so i was automatically <laughs> became the uh the producer i didn't really know what i was doing and in a way that was why stiff got a reputation having a certain sound on the record because technically it wasn't really very good but mm-hmm. uh um, when I was in the studio, I'd say, oh, that sounds great. And the engineer would say, well, all the needles are in the red, man. You know, you can't be like that. And I would say, well, it sounds fantastic, though. I mean, when you move it so the needles aren't in the red, it doesn't sound as good. Or whatever, you know, that's just an exaggeration. But I didn't really know what I was doing. But in a way, that was a kind of a good thing, you know. Oh, I love that. People who don't know the rules don't know that they're breaking them and often don't care. A very punk attitude and very rock and roll. Indeed. Here, Nick talks about the pleasures of going on the road with people you get along with. Really and truly, when you start up, mm-hmm. um, when you're a kid and you start up with the old tennis racket or something but in front of the uh, bedroom mirror, you know, posing mm-hmm. away, pretending you're Eddie Cochran or whoever it was in my <laughs> case. Um <laughs> Uh, that that's all you want to do. You know, you want to get up on a stage and show off in front of people. You don't think about traveling to exotic countries or making records or anything like that. So I suppose, really, playing live is what I like doing best of all, even though, of course, it, there's a lot of uh, hanging around and you get tired and all the rest of it. But I, I, I do enjoy it. And also, I've, the bands I've been in, we've all got on very well with each other as well. So it's been a bit like going on holiday. We have the odd row and things, but... It's real good fun. This is an interview with Nick Lowe from 1984. Tom, here Nick talks about working with a compliant <laughs> Elvis Costello. In the production and, and writing of your stuff, uh, you've collaborated with uh, many people. Do you have any favorites? Well, I think probably my, my, my the favorite record that I've produced, I think probably, is, is watching the... I can't say it. I always have trouble saying it. Watching the Detectives uh-huh. by... Uh, Elvis, although that was one of his songs, I didn't, I didn't help him write it. But I, th- I always think of that record as being the last one that I did with Elvis, where he he did exactly what I told him to do. After that, <laughs> <laughs> after that, he used to he got used to me a bit, and he would tell me to shut up and hmm. mind my own business and things like that. And you could produce the old-fashioned way, as you as you say, you like yeah, to produce. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, I had to get a little more. Devious <laughs> after that. He was just a promising newcomer in those days. That's watching the detectives, Elvis Costello from 1977. Ooh, what a great song. It sure is. It sure is. Mm-hmm. You've interviewed Elvis Costello and you know how surly he can be, so it's not surprising that Nick Lowe 
only had a small window of opportunity to have any sort of role of authority when producing Elvis. <laughs> well, I love how, how candid he is about that fact. Yeah. He also doesn't seem to be too upset by it at all. I mean, given that Elvis Costello has a pretty powerful uh, identity as a creator, and you, you might want to just give way to somebody like that in the studio. Exactly. Okay, remember what you wrote to me after you heard these clips, Christopher? No. <laughs> that's a long time ago that's what like yesterday i mean come on <laughs> you said i wish there was more oh yes yeah. i did wish there and, was more and so what happened is shortly after sending this and you writing i wish there was more and i'm kind of going you know what i think there is more so i dug out one more clip and this is really interesting ah. this is nick lowe talking about his former longtime collaborator dave edmonds what about writing and collaborating on songs? Any favorites um, there? Because you do a lot of collaborating on songs. Yes, yes, I do. Uh, Dave and I did some good ones. Mm -hmm. Although the Dave's role, when, when we used to write songs, was he was a great finisher offer. You know, I'd, I'd have a, the song, like the first verse and the, and the hook, you know, and a bit of a middle eight, and I'd be stuck, you know, and I'd play it to him. And he was great at just finishing it off. We, we, we never used to actually just strum around on a guitar and find a tune and, you know, collaboration that way. That's quite hard to do, actually, with, with people because you always kind of want it one way, you know. Mm -hmm. They wanted another. Those Dave Edmund, Nick Lowe years were, were good. I mean, it, 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 it's come around again, but uh, there, was, there were some times where it wasn't so good. But uh, they were good for you and, and Dave, were they not? Oh, yeah. I learned a lot from Dave and... It was a good band, you know, that at least when we were on the case, we were a good band, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, we, we formed, Rockpile formed for fun. We, we, we really started off for fun. We had one rehearsal, well, one series of rehearsals, and anyway, we learnt up a set, and that was it. We, the, the other rehearsal we did during our, what, three years together, three or four years together, was all done sort of verbally on the way to the gig, you know, we'd say, what about doing such and such a song, and we'd you know, work it out right. When I give you the nod, stop. You know? Oh, yeah. And that was about it. But I learned a lot from Dave in the studio, you know, about working in the studio. He's <clears throat> he's really great guy in the studio. He is. He's basically the same type you are, though. He learned from the School of Hard Knocks, did he not? Yeah. Basically? Yeah, I think so. He's also much more of a technician, though, than I am. He's you a technician. Know, he, you were the sound guy. That sounds great. And I said, no, that's he was the engineer you were talking about earlier on. Yeah, <laughs> he was. He Although he can, he, he's got it. He's got it all together. But uh, he he really used to like this very much the rock and roll stuff. Whereas I'd like to do different, you know, incorporate different styles uh, as well. But very often that some of the recording techniques that he used, and he discovered, you know, that because it's quite hard to make authentic sounding rock and roll records in this day and age, you know, because the equipment is so good nowadays that it's all against you because the best rock and roll stuff is doesn't sound separate, you know, it sounds like one big noise with a vocal sitting on top of it. If it sounds too clean and separate, it sounds real wimpy, you know. <laughs> and Dave is really good at finding ways of getting round to what teams of scientists have been slaving away trying to <laughs> e eliminate. Oh, wasn't that great? Great stuff from Nick Lowe in conversation with my buddy Gord James in 1984. I love Nick's sense of humor. It reminds me a little bit of the sense of humor that both Neil and Tim Finn have. Right, And right. your interview with Graham Parker is very much like that. And, of course, as you said before, Nick <laughs> yeah. Lowe 
produced two of Graham Parker's albums. He also produced Stop Your Sobbing for the Pretenders. He worked with Paul Carrick on one of his solo albums, which is one of my favorites from the early 80s. I mean, it was interesting just hearing you list off all of those people that he worked with. Yeah. I mean, he had to bring some kind of influence, even if it wasn't overt, to all of these people in their own way, right? Right. Um, his, his nickname, by the way, was Basher. <laughs> oh. Because... Yeah, he always used to say to his artists, bash it out, we'll tart it up later. (laughs) Bash it out, we'll tart it up later is perfect. You know what, that's kind of like what you and I do on this show. We just bash it out. (laughs) Sadly. And then I edit out all of my stumbles and I tart it up a little bit by adding music and stuff like that. (laughs) Well, you saved me with the uh, shower performance of uh, Beyond the Sea and I'm I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, that was so much fun. You were great. But that is, I think, in episode 803 or 804. Get into the Famous Lost Words archives to hear Christopher sing Beyond the Sea in the shower. It's a wonder. Now, mind you, it does not even come close to touching Tom doing Chubby Checkers' Let's Twist Again. Come on, everybody. Clap your hands. Sorry. <laughs> he he I, can't help himself. It's I'm all right. deeply sorry. Well, you know, that. that performance has gotten a lot of uh, reaction from uh, followers of Famous Lost Words. Oh, really? Yeah. People are saying things like, what was that? And <laughs> is Tom all right? Those are the kind of questions people are asking. So. All right. Anyway, I think we were just talking about Nick Lowe. That's Nick Lowe on Famous Lost Words. That's a wrap for this week. Our executive producer is Sarah Cummings. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Famous Lost Words is heard on radio stations across the country and as a podcast around the world. Check out past episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or any other podcast platform. 